Well, greetings, New Hope Church. It is so great to see all of you on this beautiful fall morning. Uh, My name is Matthew, and I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're right here in this space, or perhaps you're joining us from somewhere far and wide uh, around uh, the world, and I know some of you are. In fact, I talked to a couple of you this week. Welcome right here to New Hope Church in the Minneapolis area. What a delight to connect with you as we're worshiping here just now. Uh, the Lord just prompted me to say to you, you are so very loved. Did you know that? Do you know that? Jesus loves you so much. And I want you to hear that and receive that as we continue our time here today, as we spend time in the scriptures, as uh, we continue our worship, as we celebrate the Lord's table here in just a little bit. A couple of things I wanted to highlight for us, uh, and then also to invite us to uh, have some sense of sobriety about. One is, guess what? I, I, I'm in a meeting a couple of days, a few days ago, sometime in the middle of the week here, and I get a text from one of our student leaders, and uh, the, the text simply said, hey, last night one of our students became born again. Right? So can we just praise the Lord for that? I mean, that's such great news, right? I love getting texts like that. Isn't that a fun, th- a fun message? To get, hey, last night one of our students came to know Christ. We came born again. I mean, it's so great. So uh, praise God for that. And we're going to celebrate that in a moment. And uh, by the way, if by chance you're here, you're listening to my voice right now, and you don't have a personal connection with Jesus, now is a great time to call unto him uh, for your salvation. To in faith just acknowledge, you know, Lord, I am a sinner, and I need a Savior, and I understand you, Jesus, are God's provision for my salvation. And I want to believe and follow you uh, from this day forward. So right now is a great time for that, and we'll pray about that in a moment too. But it also seems reasonable, of course, for us to pause and just reflect on uh, what has been a tragic week, all right? Not just around the world in places like Israel, uh, but also right here in our country in Maine with the, just the nightmarish events that unfolded with the shooting uh, that was there. And so Uh, What I want to do is invite us to just lament with that as well. You know, God's people ought to be leading the way in genuine lament about grievous things because we have a God who carries those things and he enters into that grief with us. And so I want to invite you to just join me in a spirit of prayer. Uh, We have things to celebrate and things to grieve. And then we're going to spend time in this love letter called the Bible. Okay, let's do that right now. Father, thank you, first of all, for those who are guests here, those who are new uh, to New Hope Church, who may be visiting even for the first time or tuning in for the very first time. We are so thankful and we bless them and we praise you for them and we welcome them. And Father, we give you praise for uh, wondrous news such as uh, that message that, that I got the other day from Pastor John. Oh God, thank you for this uh, student who has called on Christ and uh, for the others this fall that have, we know a number have. And we praise you for this. We thank you that you are doing a work, a mighty, wondrous work in the lives of our family here, our church family. And uh, we, we give you praise and glory for each one that calls on the name of Jesus for salvation and hope. Lord God, thank you that in you we are made new and find hope. Lord, we want to pause and just cry out to you with grief. Lord, our hearts hurt. We have uh, 
grieve so much this week because of what's happened in Maine with the uh, tragedy there. And uh, we pray for those families and we weep with them. And we feel it deeply. Many of us, I know, have just been glued to all of that as the week has unfolded. And Father God, we, uh, we ask that in your good mercy you would give us as a people wisdom to know how to get ahead of these things and to make those hard decisions that would bring that about more effectively so that our thoughts and prayers aren't just left at that but actually give way to tangible action that can be meaningfully helpful for our society. And God of heaven, we grieve and plead with you for what's going on in the Middle East. We pray for the Palestinians and for the Jewish people. These are image bearers. And we ask God of heaven that you would bring about swift justice against those perpetrators of evil, the terrorists who are feigning allegiance to people when in fact they just use people for their own ends. And we pray, God of heaven, that the uh, Isa, which is the Arabic word for Jesus, and Yeshua, which is the Hebrew word for Jesus, that the Isa, Yeshua, Prince of Peace, would have his peace prevail in a supernatural way over these circumstances. We ask you for this, God of heaven, and we know you're powerful and can bring that about. And we don't know how you're going to do it, but make Isa Yeshua famous in this. Make him famous. For us now, as we turn to your word, would you teach us and help us to be more like this Jesus and use even me as a one simple friend, part of this family, to uh, bring forward your word today. In the name of Jesus, all of God's people said together, amen, amen, amen. So, James, the brother of Jesus, the writer of this book that bears his name, in the New Testament, he asks a question. And uh, we see the question in James chapter four, verse one, here it is. What causes quarrels? And what causes fights among you? It's a penetrating question. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Now, I have to tell you, I believe that you and I are being discipled. We are being conditioned by the world around us. I believe that you and I are being discipled by the world around us. We are being discipled. Now, hear what I'm about to say. We are being discipled toward fear and rage. Did you hear that, church? 
You and I are being discipled toward fear and rage. And we are being discipled by talk radio. We are being discipled by social media. We are being discipled by our favorite cable news talking head. We are being discipled by no end of celebrity pastors. And even many churches that peddle fear and rage so as to seem important and powerful. But notice what I'm saying here is we're being discipled by the world and the effect is that we are listening more to the noise of the world than we are to the heart of God. And fear and rage is the commodity of our time. And I will tell you straight up, I have spent too much of my time unwittingly pulled in to the gravitational force of fear and rage through those medium that I just spoke of, the media I just spoke of. And the result is I've spent too much time just angry. Walking around an angry man, cloaked in the facade of Jesus' gentle righteousness. Louis L'Amour, the great theologian, has this to say. Anger is a killing thing. It kills the man who angers. For each rage leaves him less than he had been before. It takes something from him. It takes from him rather than gives. As a simple principle, let me tell you now, when we are discipled by the Holy Spirit toward Jesus, the only begotten, we are given something. When we are discipled by the world and all of its noise, all of its rage and anger, something's taken from us. Oh, friend, listen to me. Sister and brother, hear me. We need to be a people who have more rather than less. We need to be a people willing to reach for more rather than settle for less. And the scriptures help us know how to do that. And so my attention is drawn to the verses that follow James chapter 4 verse 1. Because after James asks this penetrating question, he then gives some truthful answers regarding that question. Why do we rage? Why do we fight? Why do we quarrel? Well, here's some answers James offers. And within those answers are also some solutions for us. So what we're going to see in James chapter 4 for these next few minutes, broadly speaking, are two things. We're going to see the problem that fuels the question being asked about quarreling and fighting But then we're going to see the provision that meets that problem. All right? Do you hear this? So we're going to see the problem, and then we're going to see the provision that meets that problem. Well, let's look first at the problem. 
But before we do, actually, let me just remind us of something very important. It's very important. We've mentioned this now most of these weeks as we've gone through the book of James. James is writing to Christians. He is writing to Jewish Christians that are scattered all over the Roman Empire. Now, this is important because when he asked the question in James chapter 4, verse 1, why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? He's asking Christians. He's not talking to those who have deconstructed. He's not talking to those who are pagan. He's not talking to the atheists that supposedly believe nothing. He's talking to Christians. Why do you Christians fight and quarrel? We have to understand this, right? Please hear me. This is who he's talking to. And the fact that there's fighting and quarreling among Christians or from Christians is a problem. It's a big problem. It's a huge problem. And I want to make some observations about what fuels this problem, and and really they're not mine. They're straight from the text here. Uh, the, The first observation I want to make regarding what fuels the problem is what what I'm calling, and what James even calls, the problem of passions, passions, all right? Now look with me in James 4, verse 1. We're going to go back to that. I read part of it a moment ago, but allow me to read all of it. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? This is the penetrating question that James asks. But notice, he goes further, is it not this? that your passions are at war within you. That your passions are raging within you, fighting against your newfound identity as a follower of Jesus. Now that word for passions is uh, something we need to look at. It speaks to an internal Desire for satisfaction. The older translations use the word lust or lusts. Now, that, that's fine. I don't know that I like that language or that wording because when we hear the word lust, we, we too easily reduce it to uh, sexual appetites. And that has a place. Don't misunderstand me. That is an issue for sure. But if we simply leave it there, we're missing the broader import of the passage here. Because this internal desire to have satisfaction also is shaped by a thirst for power. Do you hear that? For power and for dominance. And so the passions of which James speak that rage within us are these these, uh, internal uh, uh, yearnings for the world to be about me. For me to have what I want, what I demand, what I need. Chief of which, when all is said and done, is my own autonomy and my own power over whatever is around me. All right, so don't overlook the idea that when James is talking about these passions that are raging within us, 
that fuel the problem of fighting and quarreling and even fear and rage, what, he, what he's speaking to is when all is said and done, I am driven to have power over my circumstances, over my world. Now, James, notice what else he says here, verses uh, two and three. You'll see it on the screen here. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You might say, well, I haven't murdered anybody, but remember what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, that even if you think thoughts of hatred and anger, that is akin to murder, all right? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Right? So with, with this, uh, this um, ambition to have my desires satisfied, I, I'm willing to risk it all and, and even hurt people for such. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's that word again. There's that word again. And, and uh, so what we... What we recognize here is it is this, this uh, drive for power that hurts people and as, as Louis L'Amour uh, alludes, also hurts ourselves. It hurts ourselves. It hurts me. It hurts me. I know when I allow my self-interest to get the best of me over and above what honors my neighbor, whomever that might be. I feel ashamed, something deep down isn't right, and I hurt. And that's assuming the most basic kind of response to my selfishness. There could be more collateral depending on how far I let it go. Others get hurt and I get hurt when I make the world about me, okay? All right, so that's, that's one observation. A second uh, observation I make uh, that, that fuels the problems here of fighting and quarreling and, and such is, is what I'm calling partnership with the world. Partnership with the world. This is a problem. Now, look with me in verse 4, James 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Now, let me stop for a second. So, so James, can, let me, let's just acknowledge here, ready? James does not mince words, okay? Can we just acknowledge? Uh, he's not, I mean, listen, up here, I love being here in the upper Midwest. We tend to be a little more genteel with our thoughts and feelings about things. James clearly is not from the upper Midwest, all right? I mean, maybe he's a Packer fan, I don't know, but he's not generally from the upper Midwest. He's just saying it directly, you adulterous people. Now, by the way, what he's alluding to by saying that is that he sees these Christians as potentially those who are compromising their affections, as it were, committing adultery with the world and leaving behind their first love, which is Jesus, okay? And so he goes on, notice what he says here uh, in verse four, he says, he says, uh, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. 
Verse five, or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? All right, now James is calling out a, a, a simple uh, fact, and that is too many of you Christians want to be a friend of the world more than a friend of God. And this is why, if I can say it this way, this is why we allow ourselves to be discipled so thoroughly by the world as opposed to discipled by Christ. Because the world is friendlier to us, we think. And we want to be friendly to it. And so, for example, we will spend literally two to three hours a day listening to our favorite talk radio, two or three hours in the evening listening to our favorite echo chamber cable opinion person, two or three hours a day doom scrolling on social media, seeing what the latest rage and fear issue is, except for puppies, of course. There's never a fear issue with puppies, all right? But nonetheless, and maybe, maybe, maybe we'll spend a few minutes each morning in the Word and a 35-minute message on a Sunday. Which, which discipleship model is most prevalent in your life? The noise of the world or the voice of God through His Word and through His Spirit? I want you to really think about this, dear ones, just as I am really wrestling with it for myself. When we talk about world here, it's the idea of cosmos. That's the Greek word, and it means uh, all earthly things. In fact, listen to this uh, particular definition of cosmos. It's the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, etc., which although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, that is to say stir those passions that we spoke of a moment ago, seduce from God, and then become obstacles to the cause of Christ in our life. All right? And we get so attracted by the worldly things. Conversations about politics, conversations about theology, conversations about culture wars. We get so drawn into that and discipled by all the voices or whichever one we prefer. And the effect is, we're saying, I really want to be a friend of the world. And yet, it's so subtle because so often what it is we hear appears so righteous. Except for, if we're thoughtful about it, we'll realize so much of what we hear is about the preservation and the promotion of our own power. Which plays into the passions, which distract us from Jesus, who alone is supreme. So here's a third observation. So we have the... We have the whole issue of, of uh, passions and partnership with the world. And by the way, that word partnership uh, in, in the Greek language, philo, it does mean friend, friendship. All right, so here's a third one, though. And it's what I call the, the um, 
put down of others, putting down others. And we see this in the text as well. Look with me, verse 11. Do not speak, now remember, he's speaking to Christians. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. Church, hear me. James is writing to Christians. And his working assumption right here, based on his observation and experience in the Holy Spirit's counsel, is that Christians are destroying each other with their words. They're destroying each other. And if our words damage one another, what might we expect ought to be the experience of the world beyond the Christian faith? Those who don't know Christ, what's their experience with us? How, how do they feel when they're with us? Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother, that is to say a fellow Christian, or judges this fellow Christian speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And what's the law? Remember, we've talked about this already a couple weeks ago. The law, the greatest command of all the scriptures, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. Two chapters earlier in James chapter 2, James says the royal law of all the scriptures is to love your neighbor. Does backbiting and judging and criticizing your fellow Christian demonstrate loving your neighbor? If you judge the law, that is to say, if you want to judge the greatest command as not worthy of you, then you are not a doer of the law, but simply a judge. That's some hard words right there, friends. And yet James' concern is that Christians are devouring each other with their words. And why might that be? It might be because amongst Christians you have different views of politics. But within the American Space. what we do is we elevate politics to such a, a height that that becomes the end-all, be-all defining thing of our lives. And so then if I'm with a sister or a brother in Christ and her or his politics are different than mine, I judge them based on that rather than celebrate that they are washed in the blood with me, a sinner. And I dare say the evangelical Christian community around the United States perpetuates this with its culture warriorism because we're friends of the world. And James is calling it out. Why as a Christian would you be critical of your fellow believer? Now here's the thing I want us to remember. Let's not just think about our words. Those have meaning, right? But let's go further. Let's think about what we just think. Because you know what? Many of us can be really good at saying the right thing even as we're standing there thinking something despicable. I'm great at it. Trust me. 
And James is like, why? Why do that? We wonder, remember the prevailing question, why is there fighting and quarreling among you? Because your passions are getting the best of you, because you are being uh, a partner to the world, and one evidence of that is the way you put each other down. Come on now, he's, he's like, really? Verse 12 says, there's only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you and I to judge our neighbor? And here's what I would say, by the way, to you and me, because the media that we listen to day in and day out, and it strikes me, this is a fascinating juxtaposition to the worship song we just sang about offering incense day and night, night and day. The media that we absorb day in and day out, day and night, night and day, feeds us this bill of goods about fear and rage that make us even start to think poorly of our fellow believer, much less the person who is not part of the family of God. And so I would just say to all of us, stop listening. Turn it off. Krista and I, I will tell you, for years I bathed myself in the water of all the noise through the media I just referenced. And several years ago, Krista and I just said, you know what, we're done. I've watched more cable news this week because of the war in Israel and because of what's happened in Maine than I have in years. And I can't remember the last time I listened to talk radio. It's been years. And it has been incredibly freeing. And I want to invite you to have that same freedom and let go the noise because it's not good for your soul. Now, another observation that fuels the problem is the issue of, and I want to be real clear on this, presumption. When we look in James chapter 4, we look at verses 15 and 16, here's what we read. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. All right? Now, here's the thing, friends. People ask me regularly, sometimes they'll say to my friends, how come Pastor Matthew always says, Lord willing? You know, Lord willing, we'll be in James next week. Lord willing, we're going to have uh, Minnesota Adult and Teen Challenge be our Thanksgiving offering uh, this year, uh, which I'm excited about, by the way. That's an announcement. Lord willing, um, Lord willing, the Vikings are going to win today. Lord willing. I mean, Jesus comes soon, right? Okay, so here's the thing. Why do I say that kind of stuff? It's because of this passage right here. Because I don't want to presume against God. Paul, or rather James suggests there's an arrogance about that. And it puts us in a position of being God and of being supreme. And this is a problem. Presuming on the circumstances as if I'm in charge, right? Which, 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 which then allows me to sit in judgment and is shaped by my partnership with the world 
and fuels the passions that are at war within me, hurting people and myself, which creates the fighting and the quarreling, and all of which gives way to fear and rage rather than humility and hope. And at the end of the day, friends, this is really the problem that James is addressing in James chapter 4. My bent toward being in charge and having it my way and believing that I am as good, if not better than God, I can be supreme over my moments, over my thinking, over my feelings. And this is a problem. And it hurts people. And it hurts me. Now, there is a wonderfully blessed provision in the face of this. And I want to show that to you. And it's right here in verse 6. I love this. It's very simple. This text says, but God gives more grace. Isn't that great? In the face of the problems, God gives grace. And that is a delightful word, by the way. In the Greek language, it's the word charis. We get the, the word charismatic from it, or charisma. And it has this idea of joyful, loving kindness, goodwill, mercy, and bounty. I want you to think of God being excessive with his goodness, with his mercy. Excessive, generous. That is what is meant here. Oh, in the face of these problems, God is excessive with his mercy, with his goodwill. And what an incredible contrast to the way the world disciples us. The world disciples us toward rage and fear, playing off our anger and our afraidness. And Jesus disciples us with his mercy, his goodwill, his bounty, his joy. Which one is more appealing to you? Right? Which one is better? And I want you to see here, uh, this, this incredible goodness that, that is spoken of in these few simple words. There is more grace. This incredible goodness is embodied most chiefly in Jesus himself. That Jesus who lived a sinless life, was arrested by a friend, or I'm sorry, betrayed by a friend and arrested by the authorities, and he was tried by an unjust court and then tortured and crucified and killed. And then he rose from the dead. And now he is alive in session at the right hand of his father, pleading for us sisters and brothers, pleading his goodwill over us, his grace over us. Now that is a news story worth telling. That is discipleship worth leaning into. And because this is so, sin, death, and the devil, pff, nothing, no power. They have, these things do not have the final word. But how do we access such a gift? Well, 
James tells us, look with me, verse 7 and following. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep, and let your laughter turn to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Now, at that moment when we think, that sounds really morose, notice these last few words, and he will exalt you, right? And within that are some strong themes of submission to Jesus, resistance to the devil, proximity to God, purity of heart, repentance of the soul, and humility of the posture. That's what we see here. And this is, our, this, this is what we ought to embody as a people. Not fear and rage, but this kind of humility and hope brought about by the work of Christ. Now, what I'd like to do is, before we step into communion, is just offer a couple of directives, takeaways. They're very simple, but really important. I want to give attention to the concept of resistance and then remembrance. Now, by way of resistance, what we're seeing here is the devil wants to fight us tooth and nail. All right? He wants to fight us tooth and nail. He hates you. He hates me. He hates God's church. He hates Jesus. And he wants to fight And he wants to knock us flat. He wants to take us out. He wants us to stumble and fall. He wants us to peddle rage and fear rather than humility and hope and joy and goodness. My friends that are uh, part of the recovery movement out and about, right? Those who are in recovery, they talk about this word called HALT, H-A-L-T, all right? Uh, you'll, you'll see it here. Here's what it means. Halt. H is for hungry. A is for angry. L is for lonely. T is for tired. A number of us in here know this, right? Okay? Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And this is what the enemy loves to do. He is a great student of you and me, and when he sees one or more of these things in our lives, boy, he knows that sister's vulnerable. That man's vulnerable. And I'm going to come at him. I'm going to come at her. And I'm going to meet her in that anger that she's already feeling because of the injustices of the world around her. And I'm going to turn that even more, more shadowy toward rage and unforgiveness and bitterness. Or, or that boy, he's, he's, he's hungry. That's why he's wrestling with those addictive things. But I, I'm, going to, I'm going to make that even worse and tell him that you're so hungry, you're starving, and because God is not enough for you. And on it goes. And friends, hear me clearly. If you are part of this, and I will tell you too many days that those four things describe me. And if you and I are part of that rubric right there, when we are hungry, let us feast on Jesus and his word. 
And when we are angry, let us lay that feeling, that intense reality that we are experiencing at the foot of the cross and let us take hold of forgiveness. And if we are lonely, let us step into a God-honoring community with people that love each other rather than hate each other and with people that build each other up rather than tear each other down. And if we are tired, then let us hear the words of Jesus who says, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This Jesus. Which takes me to the remembrance part. Let's remember him as the great bulwark against the noise of the world that wants to disciple us toward fear and rage and self-destruction. This Jesus who is the embodiment of power and victory, this Jesus whose blood washes us clean, this Jesus who is triumphant. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul from from, uh, Philippians chapter 2. I love these words right here. Here we go. In fact, let's read them together. Can we do that? Let's read them in a good, loud voice right here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us, each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Right? Now that... That right there, that's where we meet humility and hope and fear and rage fly away because those things can't stand before the presence of Jesus. This Jesus who on the night in which he was betrayed, now think about that. Betrayal, darkness, death. And yet, he served a meal lovingly and generously. And he said to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. Eat of it in remembrance of me. And they didn't understand what he was saying, but what he knew that they didn't know was in a matter of hours, his body would be broken on that cross, crushed, as it were. And when they would eat the bread from then on, as we do, it's a reminder that the sinless, holy Jesus became broken so all of us sinful people could be made whole. Isn't that great? And then later in that meal, Jesus took a goblet of wine. And he said to his disciples, he says, this is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of it as often as you will in remembrance of me. What in the world was that about? 
What Jesus knew that they couldn't appreciate was in a matter of hours, his blood would be shed on that cross, spilt to pay for the sins of all of us, all the world. A new covenant, a new promise in his blood that those who will trust him will be washed clean. And right now you have in front of you the the bread and the, the cup. And in a spirit of confession and thanksgiving, celebration, let's remember the body broken and the blood shed that we might be with Jesus now and forevermore. His friend, no longer a friend of the world.